Hi friends, welcome to Lawyer Up. Our guest today has significant legal experience working with trafficking and domestic violence survivors. Uh, this stems from the practice areas of immigration law and also family law. Now, before she joined Mosaic Family Services, she worked at, as a fellow with the Polaris Project, now referred to as Polaris in Washington, D.C. She obtained her bachelor's degree in international affairs through George Washington University in 2012 and then went to SMU for law school. And after that, she worked as a fellow working on constitutional issues, which is ever more important today challenging discriminatory immigration laws before federal courts. Now she manages the legal program at Mosaic Family Services. Fun fact, she's actually one of my mentees in the past. And without further ado, want to introduce you to Christine Cruz. Friends, if you haven't subscribed to our channel yet, please hit subscribe down below, smash the like button, and please leave a comment below. We'd love to know how you have helped others. Welcome, Christine Cruz. Welcome to Lawyer Up. How are you today? Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. One, uh, glad to have you. Um, you know, Christine, for those in the audience don't know, uh, you work for Mosaic Family Services, right? Yes, that is correct. And that's in Dallas, Texas. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your background before you got there? Yeah, so um, I went to law school um, at SMU, Pony Up, I guess. Um, and after graduating, I took a post-grad fellowship at a nonprofit that worked on constitutional law issues affecting the Muslim American population. Um, there, I specifically worked on impact litigation, challenging discriminatory immigration policies. Now, that, uh, I know you worked on some appellate work with, with that uh, organization, and now you're doing more direct face-to-face -face with clients. Yes, that's correct. I, um, when I first started at Mosaic, I was a staff attorney doing family law and um, immigration law as well. So direct client services, definitely very different from appellate work. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, just to, uh, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of attorneys I know are transitioning in some way. So, uh, and some people think they're stuck in one field for a certain amount of time. So glad to know you've been able to do that transition several years ago. Um, now for those that don't know, I think your main area, correct me if I'm wrong, is mostly to help those who are trafficking victims. Yes, that's correct. So I work with, um, domestic violence survivors in addition to trafficking survivors, but I think that Mosaic has made a name for itself in the anti-trafficking movement in North Texas. Now, uh, we can, we can talk about both type of clients, but I, I, I can probably see there's some similar challenges serving uh, both, I guess, both type of clients per se um, during COVID. Uh, do you have any kind of, have you faced any just normal day-to-day -day life challenges because of COVID and trying to represent uh, your clients? Absolutely. Um, I think our number one mission at all times is to try to make sure that we're keeping our clients safe, we're keeping our staff safe. And so by necessity, we've moved all of our services to remote. Um, we've closed our offices to the general public unless you know, we absolutely have to meet with a client in person. Um, and so that in itself has its own set of challenges. Um, a lot of our clients do not have access to technology that would assist when providing remote services. Um, and additionally, USCIS for immigration purposes 
um, is not as flexible on, um, you know, signatures, for example. So um, having clients physically sign forms and returning them to us has been a challenge. Um, either it causes delays because we're using the post office or we have to meet with clients in person, which of course is always a risk. Right. And, and also um, from my understanding, because I'm a board member of a uh, social services agency in Houston, DIA, and I've heard that because of COVID, people who are uh, domestic violence um, survivors have to stay at home, right, with the abuser and who have not, you know, f- left the home. And, but for trafficking victims, uh, by the time they come to your office, they're away from the whole situation, right? Um, not always. So we, um, we have had clients in the past who have reached out and are still in their situations, which is always trickier. Um, and I do think that it's very similar in theory to domestic violence survivors uh, who are currently living with their abusers, just in that because of COVID, it just makes it a lot, there are a lot more barriers to leaving um, for, both, for both victims or both types of victims, um, which is on par because truly, I think at the heart of both domestic violence and human trafficking issues, um, it's all about power and control. Um, and so you see a lot of similarities in the forms of control used um, by traffickers and by abusers. Now, can you, if you can give us some more context, um, taking a step back, you know, a lot of people in our audience are not attorneys. Now, how does a trafficking victim even come to flee their situation or even come to your, your mosaic? Absolutely. And I have to apologize for my um, dog. He's, a tiny little thing, but he is very loud. <laughs> oh, so. no worries. Uh, our dog could do the same if there's someone trying to drop off a package. Yes, exactly. He, uh, COVID is, a, I think, a very interesting time for dog parents and, and actual parents um, with all of the background yeah, noise. Yeah, it's been tough. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely um, a humanizing moment <laughs> for everybody when uh, your baby right. or your dog starts making noise in the background. But um um, sorry, I forgot your question. <laughs> uh, let me think here. Oh, oh, uh, just for the general audience, um, you know, how does a trafficking victim come to either flee their situation and or reach the, to know to know about Mosaic Family Services? Absolutely, that's a great question. I think that it can happen in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes it's police intervention. Um, often it's community members who recognize that someone's just in a situation that they need to get out of um, and help them out. Um, and I think that from there, they will get referred to our organization through um, community, uh, community members, uh, religious organizations, law enforcement. Um, and we do a lot of community outreach as well. And so I think that helps get our name out there so that people think of Mosaic as a kind of safe haven for victims to go okay good to know that you know there's that mantra you know see something say something so glad that people in the public in general are uh, look, you know looking out for other people um because i noticed i think at a i won't say the name but a, gro- a national grocery store on the they have a decal like you know national trafficking hotline so just those little ways uh to capture attention of people if they're out and about Absolutely. And I think that's one great thing that Texas has done, and I know a lot of other states do as well, is requiring the national hotline to be posted in um, bars, salons, 
I believe massage parlors as well. Mm. Um, and in some other areas that are known to be um, industries where trafficking takes place. Yeah, there's a, I think there's been a couple of news articles recently about some uh, prostitution rings in Dallas being um, busted and, and people have been concerned about um, what, what's going on in a detention center in El Paso and the sexual abuse claims complaints there and just children missing right and not being accounted for so a lot of people are concerned if that could eventually lead to um you know tra- sex sex uh, and human trafficking and uh, is there anything you can usually when you get a story from a client do you see any patterns of of the abuse that you can share with the audience um Let me think. So I do think one commonality between pretty much every victim that I've ever come across um, has been that they don't recognize themselves as a victim, Um, particularly when it comes to human trafficking. It's such a, you know, it's such a trigger word or such a a label at this point, um, but a lot of people still don't understand fully what it means. Um, And it's a very nuanced analysis as well um, as to what brings you to to human trafficking. particularly in the labor trafficking context, because a lot of um, labor exploitation um, can kind of veer between the line of of labor trafficking and exploitation. Um, So I would say that first commonality is they don't recognize themselves as victims. They don't label themselves as victims of human trafficking. Um, And then from there, a lot of it is just comes down to the control that was exerted over them by their traffickers. Um, And so that can look like a variety of things um, so I, I can't really say that there's um, fully a, you know, a common set of facts or scenarios that we come across, but I do think uh, the coercive elements are, um, are usually always there. So it's not always, and it's very actually rare that it's going to be a physical, um, like use of physical force to, to exert that control. It's usually coercive tactics like threats um, that, that keeps that person in that situation. Mm, that that makes sense uh, because that it, it it goes into the cycle of abuse, right? Essentially, you may not know exactly what you're going through, even though you're in the situation. I find that that's why, you know, I've heard of people say, "Well, I can't I can't leave the situation despite you know all the advice you're providing me." It's because they're they're they're, they're stuck in it, right? They don't see they see it every day. They they suffer the emotional abuse that you're saying or verbal. Um, now let's see. Do you, um, do you know what is, what are some of the common misconceptions that the like regular civilians may not understand about trafficking? Uh, I love that question. Um, just because I think when everybody thinks of human trafficking, they automatically think of sex trafficking or they think of taken, you know, that movie of, of the girls getting taken and being put in this like right, right. ring. Um, and that really is not the, um, the most common form of human trafficking. The most common form of human trafficking is labor trafficking. Um, and so I wish that I had prepared this statistic to put up or something for you, but um, the University of Texas did this wonderful study. Um, and of course, it's, it's hard to, to estimate the number of trafficking cases just because it, is, it, it goes so undetected. Um, but they estimated in... I think it was 2016, 
that 300,000 cases of human trafficking occurred in the state of Texas. Oh, wow. And of those 300,000, it was about between 70 and 80,000 that were actually sex trafficking. The rest were labor trafficking. So the vast majority of trafficking that occurs in the state of Texas, but also just, I believe in the United States and around the world is labor trafficking. Um, and it goes so highly undetected because people aren't looking for it. And it's not really a priority because when people think of human trafficking, again, they're thinking of child sex trafficking or sex trafficking itself. Um, mm -hmm. So that's my number one um, misconception that I always like to uh, point out when someone asks me that question. Yes, thanks for raising that point. Actually, one of the, the cases I helped uh, y'all with was labor trafficking, and there was no element of or fact about sexual abuse or prostitution. So uh, that's a really important fact. In fact, if you, after the interview, if you can share that, the stats with me at some point, then we can add it to this video and uh, in the description below. And, you know, I didn't mention this or ask you earlier, but, you know, with this type of work where it's direct, direct with the client and, it, you know, these, these stories, whether it's labor or sex trafficking, they're, they're pretty difficult stories to handle, right, as a practitioner. And is there any um, opportunity that you're providing yourselves as a team to self-care, essentially? I know that's been more prevalent to talk about this past year. Absolutely. I think self-care is so important in this field um, when you're providing direct services. And truly, for any attorney, I do think that self-care is huge because you always go through a certain amount of stress for any case that you have, regardless of the content. Um, but we, it's definitely something that we talk about um, all the time <laughs> is how to incorporate self-care. Um, and it can be difficult because a lot of people use the frustration and the, the sadness or whatever negative emotion comes out of, of hearing about these cases and, and working with these clients as a motivator to work harder. Um, but that can often lead to burnout. So I tend to check in with my team um, and we, we always discuss ways in which we're incorporating self-care. So for me personally, that looks like waking up an hour earlier so I can do yoga and kind of some form of exercise mm -hmm. to center myself before the day. Um, or it could be as simple as taking a walk in the middle of the day when you have a really frustrating call with a client or, you know, you get a bad decision on a case. Um, sometimes you just need to take a step back. Definitely. And people, a lot of people don't know yoga is definitely can crush <laughs> it crushes me because it's the next day. It's, I feel so sore but uh, <laughs> in the moment. It's great for everyone. So if you haven't done yoga folks, please try. Um, in fact, the last one I did was only 10 minutes and it, it really, yeah, it crushed me afterwards. Um, yeah, it really, it, it, it engages muscles that I think we're not used to using every day. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm going to ask you a, a broader question, you know, in light of what's been going on the past couple of years, uh, I won't pinpoint something specifically, but what, what do you think as a profession that we can do to advance social justice? Oh, another great question and a daunting one that I think everybody's been asking themselves these days, really. Um, and I think it's a great question to continue to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves to rise up to. Um, I think part of it is knowing what your strengths are and what you can bring to the table and recognizing that there are limitations to being an attorney. Um, I think we, a lot of us became attorneys 
idealistically thinking we're going to uphold the law, we're going to fight for justice. But I think the reality on the ground for a lot of us who, who work with, with victims in particular, we see that there is no justice in our system. Um, and not that there's a complete lack of justice, but it's, it's difficult to get true justice for our victims. Um, for example, in family law, you know, the reality of Texas family courts is they want both parents to be present in a child's life. And so it's a very difficult conversation that I have to have with my clients as to, you know, you're going to have to share custody with someone who abused you. Um, and it's really difficult to, to completely terminate parental rights, for example. Um, so there are limits to being an attorney, and I think it's important to recognize that and, um, and really get involved with community organizers and, and other um, community members to see what else we can bring to the table outside of just being an attorney. Because as much as I think we all want, want to believe that attorneys can fix everything, we, we do have our limits, we're limited by the law. And so really from there, we have to, we have to start from the ground up and advocate for laws to change and for things to change um, so that we can you know, truly uphold laws that we believe in. Yeah, absolutely. Great point, Christine. Uh, and even the timing of the case can take so long, right? It can take a year or more, especially as it relates to immigration type cases and actually family law as well. And, um, you know, pe some people just want to get the case resolved or the client wants to get it resolved as soon as possible, you know? And um, so it's sometimes not just a financial strategy. Well, I know, I, I think, I don't know how it works with Mosaic, but in, you know, non-private, hiring private firms, the financial can be a, a, a factor as well. Um, now, in terms of representing a client, are there any challenges that you can, can share without, of course, not di disclosing any attorney-client attorney confidentiality? Um, specific to representing survivors of human trafficking or domestic violence or both? Actually, if we can, if both. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess really for both, it, it is very similar. I think the challenges, um, it, it really depends on the level of trauma that the client has gone through, I think. But often, um, it's interesting. I kind of see two different types of clients. Um, not to generalize, but um, for a lot of my immigration clients, for example, um, there's that trauma that makes it difficult for them to open up, um, which makes my job a little more difficult just because we do have to prove their victimization to USCIS for them to, you know, become eligible for, for certain types of humanitarian-based visas. Um, but I do find that clients a lot of my clients tend to, once you open up and get them to trust you, they really blindly trust you, which is a very, um, it's, it's an honor and a heavy obligation, I think that weighs on you because you want to explain the process to them. You want them to understand. Right. And for a lot of them, they're just, they just want, they want their benefit. They want the status they're, They trust you with like whatever you need to do. Um, and so that can be a challenge in itself because um, that's a heavy burden and it's, it's something is not, you know, I want to educate my clients. Um, so I think that in itself can be a challenge. And then there's another type of client that um, they do want to know a lot of things and they, they do go to Google a lot, <laughs> um, which can then, set, you know, bring its own set of challenges that 
yes, Google may say one thing, but um, that's not exactly how it works in court um, or before USCIS. Right. So uh, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, the the inter internet can be a good or bad thing, um, but in some ways, we want to empower them, right? But uh, I, we actually have someone who's not even a client at all. They keep sharing a lot of news articles with us, and it, like literally every day. And you know, we we want to help break down any kind of myth or misconception for sure. And if, you know, one person that we're getting articles from, which is helpful, imagine how many other people are, could be um, misunderstanding what's actually, or maybe reading the wrong article, right? Yeah. Some people don't know what's a reputable article at all. Exactly. And so I think it's, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's a great thing because yes, I'm glad that clients are taking it on themselves to try to educate themselves. But then on the other hand, it, it can be a dangerous thing if they're getting a hold of articles that are not, um, not accurate. Um, and so that could be a little bit of a difficult thing to kind of talk them down and, and have to walk them through how to authenticate an article or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I had, I had someone tell me that, oh, this other famous lawyer said that interviews can be waived. I'm like, well, that's actually quite difficult. That's very limited. And I doubt that's, that would happen for your case, you know, and I, I you know, just people shouldn't take a blind, blind path, you know, and not, not take the step to be prepared for their case or their interview. Um, Absolutely. But, and I yeah. think it's another challenge that sometimes they see articles from other jurisdictions um, and so having to talk to them about the difference between Texas and the Fifth Circuit and California and the Ninth Circuit, particularly on immigration issues, mm -hmm. um, is another kind of fun conversation to have with them um, right, as to right. why that might not be as applicable to their case. That's true. Yeah, even though immigration is federal law, it de depends on the circuit. Um, now, I meant to ask this earlier, but just in all the different types of the areas of law you you uh, help out with mosaic uh, is there anything that excites you about it or discourages you it could be like the legal requirements or the the process absolutely i think um on on both family and immigration law there are quite a few challenges i think um and changes to the law that i would advocate for um particularly with immigration um, for the humanitarian based visas that we work with. So um, we do U visas for victims of particular types of crime, which include family violence. Um, and then we also do T visas for trafficking survivors. Um, both of those visas require a cooperation with law enforcement, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense to a certain degree because you do want to encourage um, investigation and eventual prosecution um, of abusers and traffickers. Um, but it, it's really difficult to get the certification required for U visas. Um, and then for T visas, even though a certification is not required, um, reporting is required, which can sometimes put our clients in a very uncomfortable position um, because often they don't want to report their traffickers for fear of their own safety. Um, and then it also brings, it's particularly in this current administration, um, where there are, you know, NTA memos and, and other, um, other fears that cause um, immigrants to be fearful of, of coming forward and making their presence known, um, that fear is very real for a lot of my clients, that if they are reporting to a federal agency or even a local um, law enforcement agency, that 
you know, they, their presence will be known. And if their T visa is not successful for whatever reason, um, that they will be deported. And so having that law enforcement requirement, in my humble opinion, can be a little bit coercive um, at times. Um, and it, it does get to be very challenging when you get to the prosecution stage, for example. So say you report a case, um, law enforcement investigates it, there's enough to prosecute. Um, prosecutors will, will often discourage us from actually filing for the T visa um, or for a U visa because they don't want to make it look like the client is just coming forward and being a witness because they want an immigration benefit, um, which is, of course, what any defense attorney will say. Um, and so that delays our client's ability to, you know, to move forward with their life, to get work authorization um, and have lawful presence in the United States. Um, and so that's a lot to ask of a, of a client. Um, yeah, those, those are really good points, Christine. The uh, just, you know, I, I can understand why there needs to be a law enforcement component so they can help prosecute those people, the perpetrators. Um, but, you know, a lot of some most people don't know that. And you know this, that the person that signs that certifies these forms, it's like only one person. And so it's really difficult to get a hold of that person. And then if you're right, like if they wait, let's say six months to a year, depending on jurisdiction, that department, let's say police department might not, um, might not sign it because they said, oh, they took too long. Exactly. And um, now that there's so many changes coming through um, on the immigration side of things, in particular for certifications, they're requiring, you know, that there be no blank spaces. Um, and mm -hmm. often law enforcement agencies are not trained either because they don't have the resources or it's just not a focus. Um, they don't know. And also I don't, I don't blame them because it changes so rapidly. How would they know? Um, but so there's that one person who it, it takes forever to get them to sign something. And then it's incorrect because of a changed policy. Um, so trying to, you know, send it back to them and asking them to correct it or change things makes it even more difficult. Um, for our clients. Right. Yeah. I had to send one out to a certification to a county in Florida. I think they responded, let's say it was March. They responded the same day that the certifier responded, I'll, I'll get to it. We didn't receive the form back in, until six months later. And so just having to stay on top of it, make sure we don't miss it in the mail or whatnot. That was pretty, pretty ridiculous, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah. but it worked out. She has a green card now. Thank goodness. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Actually, yeah, we, we talked about this before, but in terms of U visa, uh, can you tell the audience what, uh, why there's a delay, you know, five to 10 years, I believe we talked about? Yes. So um, for U visas and T visas, there is a cap to how many visas are issued per year. Um, and so I believe with U visas, it's a 10,000? 10,000. Yeah. Yeah, 10,000 visas per year, um, and that gets filled every year. So there's a growing wait list of cases. Um, and the scariest thing that I think a lot of immigration attorneys learned this year is that the wait list is extremely long. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember the exact number that we talked about. I think it was about 250,000 or so wow. um, on the wait list. So you're looking at you know 25 years of waiting potentially. Um, that's a very scary number. So that part is just for the, to get the visa. And so some people confuse it, but the visa is separate, a different status from the resident 
status, the green card. And so, uh, so I guess for, you know, really for everyone to know it, it's when it's difficult to get it, the certification, the first time for the visa, you have to get it again for you to get the resident res, resident status. So if five, 10 years pass by, imagine how difficult it, you could get the same certification. You can't use the old one. Right. And it's, yeah. And it's a lot for, for, you know, local law enforcement agencies to, to handle too, um, because I don't, I mean, they get how many victims per day and they're closing out cases. And I don't know if they have a record retention policy like attorneys do. Right. Um, and so 10 to 15 years later, they probably, you know. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. Um, I think you were talking about the 10,000 for the U visa, but also there's a limit. Uh, did you mention how, how many? I think I came across it uh, the other day, but for trafficking, T visas is is it five thousand? You think? Yes, okay. it's five thousand. Um, which is, you know, I think when you know that there are ten thousand U visas available and only five thousand T visas available, I think that's a pretty stark contrast and difference. But the interesting fact about that is we've never met that cap for T visas, um, and so often when we're looking at um, clients who have a good U visa. Um, we will sometimes look and see if there are trafficking indicators to see if they are qualified for a T visa just because the wait is so much, you know, there is no wait list for a T visa. Um, and since its inception, I don't think there has ever been a wait list for the T visa. Well, politics, uh, def I mean, not politics, congressional leaders, politicians need to need to consider increasing the cap or just not have a cap at all, really if the whole point is to help prosecute these perpetrators, right? Absolutely. I don't, I'm curious as to, and I, I don't know. I mean, this would be a great intern, intern assignment, really. I'm curious as to the congressional history and the conversations that went on to lead to a cap, um, because you're right. I don't, if you meet the qualifications, I don't see why there is a need for a cap, but. The only two things I can think of is, you know, the family preference categories have a, a cap as well, essentially. So in some way, maybe to limit immigration per year or quasi filtering process because they don't, you know, to prevent fraud, I suppose. I'm not sure, but yeah, that would be a great intern project. Unfortunately, not a time that we have, we don't have time. For that. <laughs> um, well, I think we're coming to a close now. Um, you know, what are, you know, through Mosaic Family Services, are there other, other than legal support, are there other services that uh, Mosaic provides for your clients? Absolutely. So one approach that Mosaic has taken to, um, to responding to, to victimization and to trauma is to try to create a one-stop shop for, victim services. So not only do we offer legal, we also have emergency housing, transitional housing, an economic empowerment program, counseling, and case management services. Um, so the case managers act as advocates and um, connect clients to other resources within Mosaic, but also outside of Mosaic, if there happens to be something that the client needs that we're not able to provide. That's wonderful. Um... Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad Mosaic has taken that that approach with the one-stop shop because, you know, it's 
difficult for people to, especially if they're fleeing from the power, the cycle of violence, abuse, to think about all these different services they need. So that's, that's great. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I think it, we're trying to make it as victim-centered as possible. So it's um, less times that they have to tell their story, um, less places they have to physically go to, um, because of course, transportation can be a major challenge for, for clients as well, especially if they're just getting out of a trafficking situation or a uh, domestic violence situation that included financial abuse. So there's limited resources there. Um, so we definitely try to do what we can. Great, Christine. Well, I know a lot of people appreciate your services. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us uh, before we part? Um, let me think. I don't think so. Um, I think for anyone who's interested in learning more, I would encourage you to, to reach out um, to either myself, uh, the Mosaic website, or there are so many other organizations in the anti-trafficking movement and in the um, domestic violence fields that, that put out a lot of really good information. Um, so you can educate yourself and get involved if you want. Um, and if, if you want to help, volunteering is always helpful. Um, donations are always extremely helpful and much appreciated. Absolutely. Um, there are several ways to get involved. Well, we'll, we'll add a, uh, the Mosaic Family Services website down in the description below for, for the audience to take a look at. Awesome. Thanks, John. Well, Christine, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for having me again. Friends, I hope you enjoyed our interview today. It's, uh, this kind of work is very important to myself and attorneys like Christine Cruz. There's a lot of work to be done, not only in direct client services, but also in trying to improve the laws. Thank you very much. And until next time, stay safe.